Welcome to Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We're two best friends entering the world of true crime. I'll be sharing the stories of some of the worst and most horrific murder cases in history with the help of professional criminologists. And we're taking you along for the ride. In this episode, we're looking into the deadly and incredibly creepy dating game killer, Rodney Alcala. How are you? Yeah, I'm all good. I'm 80% more beautiful than the last time you saw me. Let's have a look at your face. I've been waxed. (laughs) I've been lifted. I've had my nails painted. I love that nail colour. Thank you. That mic's in the way of your face, though, so look at at me. I'm all shiny and beautiful now. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, All the listeners at home can really enjoy that. (laughs) I haven't got any brow makeup on. Have you not? No, I had mine waxed and tinted. Oh, yeah. Great. I'm blessed with naturally brilliant brows. (laughs) That was modest. Yeah, I'm getting into being modest. Is that modest? No, it's not. (laughs) Being modest is not. Being modest is overrated. Can I tell you something that I did last night? What is it? So I don't want to know. No, you're creeping me out. No, don't keep down. So last night I went to bed and I kept waking myself up through my own snoring. Right, (laughs) right. So I'd get into, I'd let close my eyes, drift off, and then go, (sighs) and then wake myself up and be like, oh, God's sake. So what I decided to do was open up voice notes on my phone or voice memos on my phone, and record the sound of my sleeping. <laughs> record the sounds of my snores, assuming that I would obviously wake up a few minutes later because <laughs> right. I would have woken myself up from the snores. But it just happened to be that this time that I hit record, I actually fell asleep. <laughs> and I woke right. up four hours later because Phil woke me up to go to the toilet and I looked at my phone and it, I have got four hours, a four hour recording of my sleep. Oh, you, so you recorded four hours of yourself sleeping. <laughs> like a fucking creep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listen to this though. So I have had complaints from Phil about my snoring many times. It's not true. Women don't snore. But then... And I didn't know that I was a snorer. I, I mean, I knew I was a little bit of a snorer because when I used to go on tour with the band and we would like, all cram into one hotel room or one tent at a festival, like sometimes the boys would go, oh, you had a really cute little snore last night. And I said, oh, what did it sound like? And they were like... <laughs> We've like slept that. together loads of times. I can't say I've ever noticed you snore. Well, apparently I do. Um, <laughs> listen to this. Can you turn it off? It makes me want to vom. Helen, turn it off! I can't, I hate it. (laughs) It's that ASMR all over again. (laughs) You sound like a canned snort. It's like... (laughs) Are you alright? But I just laugh. I was like, I woke up this morning thinking, oh shit, I was recording. 
What? That made me feel so great. And I listened to like, like a portion of it this morning, like laughing. You never hear yourself sleep. You're going to, I can see, you're going to listen to that regularly. <laughs> I know you are. <laughs> and eventually you're going to be like, oh, it's so soothing. <laughs> Sell it on CD. <laughs> I was, um, I was re-watching Bridgerton the other day. Right. And it got to like a, the really sexy bit where the Duke is like, do you touch yourself? And all the women watching it are like, oh, the Duke. I was watching it in bed, right? Mm-hmm. And my <laughs> lovely husband did exactly that. At that moment, the Duke's all like, are you touching yourself? And Baker just rolled over and went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> And I was just like, fuck's sake. <laughs> Could this be any more contrasting right yeah, now? Literally the oh. least sexy noise. Um, and now you do it too (laughs) I of course sleep like an angel and make no noises at all and I'm sure everybody who's ever been in the same room with me will attest to that yeah Mm -hmm. right so let's get to it shall we oh yeah why are we here yeah okay so let's set the scene it's a sunny day in June 1970 12 year old Robin Samso and her friend are hanging on the beach in their California town in America Robin, a blonde and pretty young girl, is doing cartwheels, having a lovely time before her ballet lesson that afternoon. Watching them is a man with a camera. He is tall, with unkept hair and clean-shaven. After a little while, he approaches them and he says he's participating in a photography contest and asks if he can take their photo. Robin agrees, but something about the man isn't quite right and a neighbour recognises the girls at the beach and asks them if everything is okay. The man disappears like a puff of smoke and once he is gone, Robin gets back on her bicycle and heads over to her ballet class alone. 45 minutes later, Robin disappeared and was never seen again. 12 days later, a park ranger is working on clearing an area in Sierra Madre the mountains in Southern California, when he comes across something odd. He sees bones, but they are definitely not animal bones. He soon comes across something even more shocking. It's a body, and removed from the rest of the body, a head. The park ranger calls his boss, who immediately calls the police. The body of Robin has been found. Bizarrely, Pieces of her hands and feet are missing, as are some of her teeth. Robin's friend points back to the man at the beach and a sketch of the stranger starts circling around. Almost immediately, the man is recognised by his parole officer. And he called detectives and said, you guys need to check out Rodney Alcala. It looks like him. It sounds like him. This man had been arrested before for assaulting a minor more than once, but the man also looked familiar to many around the nation because in between his various murders, arrests, jail time and releases, Rodney Alcala had time to appear on American reality TV show, The Dating Game. Fancy number one is a successful photographer. Please welcome Rodney Alcala. Rod, welcome. Thinking back on it, it was very spooky, you know, that... I was in a room with this guy. Had I known, I'd have killed him right there. As the layers of his case unfolded, police discovered that Robin Samso 
was far from the last murder he would be tied to. And as technology got better, police would find even more missing women who had lost their lives to the dating game killer. Essentially, the nature of Alcala's crimes were that he would present himself to women, often through an alias, as a photographer. He would basically convince people that he was doing a photo shoot, that they were a desirable part of the photo shoot. He would bring them to the photo shoot, and th then he would rape, torture, and kill them. This is going to be a rough one today. Whoa, okay. And this one involves children, so that makes my stomach twist. Listener discretion is advised. I feel like so far we have delved into people that are evil, that are like actually terrifying. Like the different, there's different types of cases that we've covered so far, but with this one, this one especially makes me like gives me the real ick because of who his victims were, but also like how he just carried himself, who he was as a person. So, yeah, it's going to be a gross one. Rodney Alcala was born in San Antonio, Texas on August 23rd, 1943. When he was eight, Alcala's grandmother decided she wanted to live out the rest of her days in Mexico. So the family moved south of the United States border. For a time, Alcala had a normal and somewhat happy childhood until his father abandoned him. His father was really important to him and something about him abandoning the family stuck with Alcala. Rodney's mother followed suit and he and his three siblings moved to Los Angeles. For time, Rodney had a pretty normal life. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansell knows more about his teenage years. He's popular, he's on the yearbook committee, he plays the piano, he uh, runs for the school, he has girlfriends, he's on the surface, an all-American or all-Mexican-American boy. So things were going well for him. Even though his dad had initially abandoned them, the family got back in touch and became close again. And after leaving school, Rodney joined the army. But after only a year, he had a nervous breakdown at the news of his father's death, which had a lasting effect on him. Alcala suddenly appeared at his mother's house while he was supposed to be at the army base because he had hitchhiked across the country to see her without permission. And he, he's given a medical discharge from the army because he has this nervous breakdown. And then he kind of goes off the, the radar for a while. So I think this is the, the period in which he starts perhaps fantasizing. His, his offending starts to take shape in his mind, if not in reality. In September 1968, Alcala committed his first known crime. He lured an eight-year-old girl into his Hollywood home. He assaults and rapes her and left her for dead. Orange County Deputy DA Matt Murphy recalled what happened. This is the worst nightmare for any parent. Rodney Alcala and people like him are the reason why you can't send your kids walking to school alone. He kidnaps her, he rapes her, a good Samaritan sees her get into his car and it doesn't look right. And he follows the car to the house and it doesn't look right. Now this is 1968, so it's long before cell phones. He finds a, uh, a payphone, calls it in, the police get there, knock on the door, Rodney shows up uh, naked and says, hey, I'll be right with you. My God. This sort of stuff, this, I, I feel physically sick actually listening to this story. And when I was 
doing my, my prep for it today, I just felt I just felt sick at hearing like eight year old girl. Mm, just, yeah, uh, horrible. Oh God. I mean, thank, like, thank God for nosy bystanders. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. So 25-year-old Rodney wasn't planning on getting caught and after a few minutes, the police lost patience and kicked in the door but Rodney had already made his escape and he had left in his wake a horrible scene. There was a small body on the floor surrounded by a lot of blood. Next to the young girl sat a metal rod he'd used to strangle her with. Now for the officer on the scene, he had to make a choice. Did he save the little girl or did he go after Rodney? Oh, what, what did he do? Mm. It's such a predicament to be in because that's a hideous choice. Because hid- yeah, if by going after him, potentially you stop him from doing it to someone else, but you would let a little girl die. Yeah, yeah, you can't. No, in this case, though, he did choose to save the little girl. He runs out the back naked. Okay, and the police officer who's by himself um, looks down, and it's one of those situations where it's save this bleeding little girl on the floor who's unconscious and very close to death. She was in a coma for 33 days after this happened. So it's save the little girl or catch the bad guy running out of the back. And he, uh, he did the right thing. He saved the little girl. But that meant Alcala got away. It was a horrific attack that seemingly came out of nowhere. People were puzzled as to what could have possibly possessed him to do this. And police officers searched Rodney's abandoned flat and found many disturbing photos of young girls. They also found an ID card so they knew who they were after. But Rodney had already managed to get 3,000 miles away to New York. Here's Jeffrey Wansell and criminologist Liz Yardley. He does not hang around. He decides to leave Los Angeles and turns up in New York, where he enlists in the New York Film School under the name of John Berger. This is quite a cunning way of both avoiding detection and of starting to build up these these new personas, these new characters to present to, to the people that he comes into contact with. So he's somebody who can put on and shed identities just like a snake, and that's how I describe Alcala. He's constantly shedding his skin and reinventing himself. It must have been so easy in those days to pretend to be someone else, especially because now there's like vigorous digital identity checks, which to be fair, I'm pretty glad of, even though it's a pain in the butt to go through so many form filling and everything. But he's literally moved from Los Angeles to New York, enrolled in film school under a completely different name. I often think of this. Right. About how... Especially in larger countries as well, because I think being from England, it's really easy to underestimate how big America is. Like that's it. That's the equivalent of us going to like Spain, in it. Maybe even a bit further. Yeah, I'd say even a bit further. Yeah, we're like so you could. It's the same country, but different states, different laws, and you could be anybody because there's no facial re- recognition mm-hmm. Com- do computers exist in the 60s not really Mm-mm. like early 70s yeah not really you could disappear yeah and that's terrifying anyone can get away with anything really they could just get up and go put the past behind them start again and be a completely different person and not be questioned for it With his new alias, John Berger, Rodney lived in a bohemian New York lifestyle and even studied film under renowned filmmaker Roman Polanski. Oh, fuck's sake. 
I don't even get me started on Roman Polanski. A lot of people have a lot of feelings about him, but obviously he studied under fucking Roman Polanski, <laughs> didn't he? He also got a summer job at an all-girls summer camp in New Hampshire, which makes me feel sick. But police were catching up. After Rodney had fled Los Angeles, he was added to the FBI's nationwide 10 most wanted list. And with his face out there, it was only a matter of time before someone recognised him. So two of these girls go to the post office to mail a letter and they see Rodney Alcala's picture under the name of, you know, Rodney Alcala. They're like, hey, that's Mr. Berger. He works at the camp. So that's how he got caught. They extradite him back to California and they try him for the kidnapping. And he received a life sentence. The family of the young girl he attacked didn't want to participate in the trial. So the prosecution was forced to let Rodney take a lesser plea. But, unbelievably, in August 1974, after serving less than three years, Rodney Alcala was freed. He went back to his normal life as if he'd never done anything at all. And I think there's some crimes that he should just never be released for. And, like, murder and rape, especially to do with children. No. What the fuck? (laughs) I have no idea what the parole board was thinking. They're looking at this guy. He kidnapped raped and almost murdered an eight-year-old little girl who was a stranger. It wasn't even somebody that lived in his house. This was a girl walking down the street. That is as predatory, pathological, and psychotic as you can possibly get. And they released him after 34 months. He had a life sentence. They released him after 34 months. In the 1970s, there was a huge drive in prisons on rehabilitation. So Rodney Alcala, with his ability to change his persona on a whim, absolutely knew how to play the system. But his freedom didn't last long because just two months later, Rodney was arrested for giving drugs to a minor. He leaves state custody in August. In October, he kidnaps a 13-year-old and provides her with marijuana. And he's convicted of breaking his parole and selling drugs to a minor. He goes back to jail. And again, I understand rehabilitation, but... Well, it's the same thing. It's like, oh, okay, well, you know, we've re- we'll try rehabilitating him. And then as soon as he's got out, oh, he's already messing around with young people. Why? How many strikes are you going to give someone? You know what I mean? I feel like they should have just locked him up again and gone, right, sorry. You, you can't. Got, re- you got out early, but you clear. You can't rehab. Some people cannot be rehabilitated. And I fully believe in rehabilitation mm-hmm. um, and the fair treatment of criminals. Yeah. But. Some people will not, and it's not cannot, but will not be rehabilitated. And if they prove that with in months, uh, fucking stick them back in. They, they should still be there anyway. Mm-hmm. Bullshit. I'm calling bullshit. Again, Rodney's stay in prison was short. After two and a half years, authorities released him on parole after declaring him reformed. And Rodney once again worked his charms. In the summer of 1977, his parole officer unprecedentedly allowed him to head back across the country to New York. This guy's just running around. In New York, he met 23-year-old Ellen Hover, and she was the daughter of a wealthy nightclub owner. He often charmed women by asking them to pose for his photographs. Ellen disappeared from her apartment one day in July 
And even with a $100,000 reward, she wasn't found for another year. Her skeleton was found on the Rockefeller estate in Westchester County, New York, and her murderer wouldn't be found for another 34 years, as he was now back in Southern California. Over the next three years, Rodney photographed other young women who were later found murdered in similar ways. 18-year-old Jill Barkham, who was found in Los Angeles Ravine. Charlotte Lamb, found in a laundry room. 27-year-old Georgia Wickstead, found strangled in her apartment. These stories of photographers or artists doing shady shit does really give me the ick. There's so, like, there's so many cases where photographers cross the line and... I think that especially as a woman, say if you're doing like a shoot in your underwear or you're doing like a a live portrait, it is a really, I mean, I've been to a lot of shoots. I've been in front of the camera a lot. I've not done anything like, you know, naked or... We've done underwear shoots. Not in front of people. No. But even so, like when you're, when you're surrounded by a predominantly male industry, even now... Even I sometimes feel like a little bit intimidated, and you know these these aren't men that are well dangerous. They're just you know what I mean. It's very easy for them to abuse their position. Yeah, you're somewhat if you're being directed and in front of someone else's lens or canvas, you kind of do what you're told, and that could lead to anything, couldn't it? Well, yeah, because also while you're there, you're not only like sort of have to think about your own personal safety, but if you're there doing a job because you need it like mm-hmm. if you need that money or whatever or if you need that exposure yeah that's it because what are they, what's what's worse you're endangering your safety or not having that yeah because if he's if he's promising them like a set of photos which they can add to a portfolio or say i'll make you i'll get you known in the modeling industry yeah and you so it's, it's, it's always like ah you're in the palm of my hand in in every aspect of the the art of photography By the summer of 1979, Rodney was travelling all over the country, but mostly made a home in California. At 35 years old, he was working as a freelance photographer after some short stints at other jobs. His photography hobby was a convenient tool for meeting people and also allowed him to commit murders quietly. Rodney convinced a 21-year-old Jill Parento to let him take pictures of her And on June 14th, she was sadly found dead in her Burbank apartment. Her body posed as if it was for a photograph. It's extra gross because also by doing that, he's got those souvenirs, doesn't he? Well, we we go on to souvenirs shortly. Oh, okay. Sorry, I'm jumping the gun. No, no, but you know... You know your stuff about the poses and the souvenirs, don't you? It's criminal minds, man. I'm just starting to think like Dr. Spencer Reed. I got him in... You don't know who he is. Oh, everyone loves Dr. Spencer Reed. Six days later, Rodney would finally do something to draw attention to himself. He spotted 12-year-old Robin Samso hanging out at Huntington Beach with her friend. Samso caught his eye. She was a pretty girl, and she was also without parental supervision. Orange County Deputy DA Matt Murphy knows more. He approached Robin and her friend, who was also 12 years old, They were sunbathing uh, on Huntington Beach right before Robin's ballet lesson. And he said, hey, uh, I'm in a photography contest. Will you allow me to take your picture? This photographer was a suspect right away because 45 minutes later, Robin disappeared and was never seen again. Robin parted ways of Rodney and her friend and headed on her bike to dance class. This was the last anyone saw of her. Police officer Steve Mack remembers the next morning when he got the briefing. 
I'd only been with the city of Huntington Beach for a year. We go to briefings in the morning and they give us any crimes that have occurred during the evening that we should be on the lookout for. And that morning on the 21st, they told us of Robin's disappearance and the description of a bicycle that she was riding at the time of her disappearance. Robin Samso's disappearance devastated Orange County. The community was known for being peaceful. We get uh, literally hundreds of thousands of people coming to our beach annually uh, because of its serenity and beauty. They put out a press release and they talked to one of uh, Robin's friends that she was with the day before and obtained a composite of a person that had been taking photographs of them at the beach. As patrol officers, we began scouring the alleys and behind grocery stores and, and shopping centers looking to see if the bicycle had been discarded. For probably the next two weeks, the alleys and behind shopping centers were probably some of the safest places because even though they'd been checked at 10 o'clock in the morning, somebody was probably driving by at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Everybody wanted to find that bicycle. Robin's friends gave a description of the man they had encountered. He had long dark hair. He had honed in on us like a shark in the water. The sketch went on local television and it looked remarkably similar to an already known sex offender. This was a big deal media-wise because we had a missing 12-year-old girl and Alcala's parole officer saw the composite on TV and he called detectives and said, you guys need to check out Rodney Alcala. It looks like him. It sounds like him. Um, you got to look at Rodney Alcala. And like 15 minutes after they received that phone call, one of the cops is home, turns on the TV, and sees Alcala on the dating game. Glancer number one is a successful photographer. Please welcome Rodney Alcala. Rod, welcome. Remarkably, Rodney had appeared as himself on the television show The Dating Game. It was a reality game show where women pick an eligible bachelor without seeing their faces. So a lot like Blind Date. That is baffling it also you gotta have some pretty big balls to like be murdering people and then go, go on, on fucking TV. national tv yeah not even like a public access broadcast or something like that is fucking national tv i feel like this is kind of like the ballsiness of intervega pretending to be a journalist yeah <laughs> reporting on his own murders and people are just like oh yeah what yeah like, uh, my god so it'd been recorded before but it just happens to be at the time that they're looking for robin that they just then see his face on the tv it's like it was meant to be what was he thinking? I just, I'm never going to be over this. And the host uh, introduced the bachelors, and bachelor number one was Rodney Alcala. Uh, the detective frantically tried to call the police department and let other detectives know that he was on television so that they could turn it on and see him. One of the other bachelors on the show with Rodney was actor Jed Mills. The vibes I got from him while we were doing the show and backstage and even during the actual filming were not good vibes. Uh, there was something wrong with this guy. Jed had met Rodney backstage before the recording and they'd been chatting. They'd been chatting a bit. Didn't talk much. The other guy and I were getting along very nicely. We were talking about this and that and uh, every now and then this, this creepy guy would say something like he would have an attitude because he knew better than everybody else. He might have been cold to the other contestants, 
But when the cameras began rolling, Rodney turned on his charm. I'm called the banana, and I look really good. Uh, can you be a little more descriptive? Peel me. Well, I like bananas, so I'll take one. Number one. That's your number one. All right. Ugh. He'd won the date with his charisma. However, when it came around to actually going on the date, the woman backed out of it. Oh, my God, good. Because after speaking to him backstage, she got some bad vibes off him and she said that he was creepy. So for her, her initiative was her lucky escape. Oh, my God. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansall has some thoughts on this. No. Now, whether Alcala took that as a rejection which I think is possible, it was no doubt an accelerant to his later killings. If you have this narcissistic character and suddenly someone turns him down, I think he takes his revenge on women in general. Women as a group. So anyone becomes fair prey. Fair prey included a 12-year-old girl... A week after she disappeared from Huntington Beach, Robin Samso's body was found in the Angeles National Forest. Robin's body was discovered 12 days after her disappearance up in an area called Chantry Flats. Uh, it was her remains, her, her whole body wasn't found. Um, oddly enough, a forest ranger had seen Alcala, we, who we referred to as the monster. The family prefers that his name never be used. Uh, dragging a blonde little girl into the uh, to the woods. And then it was 12 days later, they were doing some fire prevention clean-out up in the area, and they came across some uh, human bones. How could you do that to a child? I just... Yeah, it's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. It was heartbreaking news for Robin's family and friends. California wanted to see justice, so police had a number one suspect, one of a history of absconding. They needed to find Rodney Alcala, and fast. It turns to a homicide investigation immediately, and the detectives ramp up their investigation uh, and work it hard, and ultimately uh, Alcala is arrested on uh, July 24th. Rodney had been found staying with his mother in Monterey Park, 40 miles north of Huntington Beach. Police arrested him and searched the house and found something that would unearth his secret murderous history. As luck would have it, on the day that Alcala was arrested, they did a search warrant at his house, and one of the detectives saw a receipt for a storage facility in uh, the Seattle area. When we got into his storage locker immediately after... Uh, after he was identified and arrested, there's thousands of photographs of young women and young boys and adult women, young girls, um, that to this day, we've been unable to identify many of them. So being alone in the company of Rodney Alcala, knowing what he did to Robin Samso, we always suspected that there were more victims. We just didn't know who they were and couldn't prove it. The photos in the storage locker were of young girls, grown women, and there were pictures of boys too. And he seems to prey on those that seem vulnerable uh, or have some sort of weakness. And I guess what's scary about this is there are thousands of photos of all these different people. But how do you know? Where are all those people? Yeah. How many 
murders has he got away with? Among the hundreds of photographs were some familiar faces, women who had been murdered and whose murders were unsolved. Years later, police would be able to tie back some of these murders to Rodney Alcala. This included four women out of the L.A. County. There was Jill Barkham, who was found on a fire road up in the mountains above Hollywood. There was Georgia Wickstead, who was a young woman who just moved into her own apartment in Malibu. And then we had Jill Parenteau, who lived in uh, Burbank. Another one of the women in a photograph was Charlotte Lamb, who had just moved to L.A. from the Midwest. She was found in 1977, strangled in the laundry room of her own apartment complex. So police found even more evidence in the storage unit. With the photographs, there was also a red silk pouch. Inside were many pieces of jewellery. Now, Danny, you have spoken before about this, the trophy thing. And Akala kept their jewellery and they found loads of different unidentified pieces. Um, Stuff that we still to this day have no idea where it came from or who the jewellery belonged to. They'll look at the trophy that they kept, in this case, jewellery, and they can relive that crime by looking at this piece of jewellery. The monster was a sexually sadistic serial killer. Uh, He literally fantasized about these cases and relived them in his mind when he would look at these uh, items of jewellery, these trophies. There was one particular item that gave investigators their biggest clue yet, and it was a pair of earrings uh, that was identified by Robin's mum, and it was the pair that she was wearing the day of her disappearance. It was this evidence that helped convince the jury, but it wouldn't be enough. In 1984, the California Supreme Court shockingly overturned his conviction. Uh, It ruled that the jury should not have been informed of Rodney's history of child abuse, so it was not a fair trial. The decision was devastating to Robin's family, which is bollocks because, of course, he, people need to be made aware of his past. That is baffling. Like this is, I'm, I'm moving. Uh, we've heard it every episode. I'm, I'm gone from, I'm sad to angry again now. What, what fuck? Like, how is that not relevant? It's so relevant. How is that not relevant? Piss me off. Like he's done it before. He'll probably do it again. I mean, I get that it needs to be an unbiased trial, but equally, like, that's part of who he is as a person, whether you've done it or not. Like, you've done it before. Yeah. I think for everyone involved in law enforcement, it's always frustrating when a convicted murderer has his sentence overturned. But it was first overturned based on the fact that improper evidence was introduced at the penalty phase. While we suspected that Robin had been sexually assaulted, there was no physical evidence to it at all. But Rodney remained on remand. At a second trial, he was once again found guilty of Robin Samso's murder. He was again sentenced to death. But once more, the conviction was overturned almost 20 years later in April 2001. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals felt that the defence didn't give him adequate uh, protection and that they should have gone to the crime scene where the body was discovered, and for that reason it was overturned. Once again, Rodney remained on remand while authorities considered whether to try him for the murder a third time, but sort of luckily, the overturned convictions meant that technology had time to advance. It was now 2001 and DNA evidence and testing was far enough along now that law enforcement might be able to prove Rodney's ties to other possible victims. Homicide detective Steve Mack took this opportunity to submit some of the evidence to a lab. 
Revisiting post-mortem reports, investigators found that Rodney was likely to be responsible for more deaths than just Robin Samso's. Bam! No shit. They were able to tie his DNA to the murders of Jill Barkham, Jill Parento, Georgia Wickstead, Charlotte Lamb, who had been killed between 1977 and 1979. The job of prosecuting Rodney fell to Orange County Deputy DA Matt Murphy. Murphy was determined to make sure Rodney paid for all the lives he had taken. There's no free murders. If somebody kills 10 people and there's an 11th out there that's really hard, we don't give them a freebie and just go with the 10. We hold them accountable for every single person they kill. And it, it's more work for the prosecution, uh, it's more work for the police, but to a man and woman, the police who we've worked on this, they, they understand um, people are happy to do the work if we can bring justice to the families. So it's everyone that we can get them on, we're going to try them on. Rodney Alcala's new trial was set for January 11th, 2010, but he had one more trick up his sleeve. Rodney decided to proceed pro se. He was representing himself. Alcala decides to represent himself at, at trial, and there's an old saying that says anyone who chooses to represent themselves has a fool for a client, and that's very true in, in this case. And, and he's not just a fool, he's an he's a absolute narcissist as well. He wanted to be up there in the spotlight, and he wanted to tell his side of the story because he thought he was the smartest guy in the room. The 66-year-old believed that there was only one person in the world who could do a decent job of defending him, and that was the man himself, the audacity. But Rodney was up against the formidable prosecution team of Gina Satriano and Orange County Deputy DA Matt Murphy. Matt Murphy is a prosecutorial genius. Uh, he's got the, the charm and the wit to draw a jury in and control them in the palm of his hand. He knows what to say and when to say it for its maximum effect. I couldn't have asked for a better prosecutor in this case. It's kind of this, a very surreal process, but you actually kind of get to know the guy. You know, it's like, like you would a lawyer. You spend hours together, you're sitting next to each other, you're working out complex evidentiary things and figuring out what the questionnaires are going to contain. And just like you get to know a lawyer, here was Rodney Alcala. It was, um, it was very dark, but also fascinating. Uh, maybe I'm twisted, but it was it was interesting. Matt would have to treat Rodney with the same respect he did with any other defense attorney, but he was really facing a serial killer. As a professional, you've got to deal with him, and you've got to engage him in conversation, and you've got to talk to him. And what I saw when I dealt with him is I could see how every one of these young women would get in the car because he was so intelligent, he was a handsome guy, not by the time we got to him, but back then, you know, all that, you could see how this very intelligent, very charming, very handsome guy could lure these women into positions of vulnerability where he could rape them and murder them. The whole situation was really surreal. He would um, ask himself questions as his own defense lawyer but he would he would almost change into a different character he'd speak to himself in a slightly lower voice when he was acting as his attorney oh my God. like so um alcala where were you on the night of oh i was at home watching tv i just think it's so arrogant i, yeah. I do i really do he was allowed to cross interrogate witnesses and speak about courtroom 
tactics. It was especially cruel when Rodney spent a lot of his time cross-examining Robin Samso's mother. So he was literally talking to he her. Was, oh. And she had to... That's gross. Because yeah. also, like, he probably really got off on that. As yeah. Well. It's fucked up. This woman has been... Her credibility is questioned. And, you know, and here, the third time around... Rodney Alcala is representing himself. So she's getting cross-examined by the murderer of her daughter who's calling her a liar. I mean, imagine that. To watch him cross-examine Robin's mother and get within feet of her and ask her personal questions really made me angry that he should be allowed to be that close. I think the court should have ruled that if you want to talk to her, you want to cross-examine her, that you need to remain in your chair and sitting at the council table. It got real frustrating for me that he was allowed to do that. Again, in my mind, he's reliving uh, that incident through his questions of Robin's mother. I'm just sitting there shaking my head. I don't even know why that was allowed. I can't believe it was allowed yeah, to happen. Rodney didn't seem to offer any defence to the four new murder charges against him, but he was adamant he didn't murder Robin. Sitting in the gallery was now retired officer Steve Mack. I sat with the family through a lot of the trial. Uh, and I would speak to them before we went into court and, and afterwards. And every now and then I would talk to Matt Murphy regarding the, the tactics of the trial. But since I wasn't actually participating, I tried to stay out of that aspect of it. But the prosecution was prepared. They were armed with new evidence about another pair of earrings found in Rodney's storage locker. Back in 1979, Rodney claimed that they were his. DNA evidence was about to prove him a liar. They, in fact, belonged to another one of his victims, Charlotte Lamb. We got 0.06 nanograms of DNA belonging to Charlotte Lamb. So when we're in that courtroom... It's almost like Charlotte Lamb is whispering from the grave to our jury, Robin's mother was right. Rodney Alcala keeps earrings. You know, I mean, it was the most powerful evidence you could ever, you could ever hope. And just this tiny little piece of DNA that sat there for decades and, you know, technology caught up to it, thank God. And that was, uh, that was sort of an emotional part of the trial, you know, when the jury got to realize that Robin's mother, after all of these years, and after all of these cross-examinations, was conclusively proven to be right by the DNA of Charlotte Lamb on another earring found in the exact same pouch as the ones that Robin was wearing that day. Linking the murder of Charlotte Lamb to the murder of Robin Samso was the final nail in the coffin for Rodney Alcala. On February 25th, 2010, the jury had reached a verdict on all five murder charges. Three of those cases... We had very strong DNA, but on Jill Parenteau, it was a it was a tougher case. But we had a fortunately we had a great jury, and we had Francisco Bersenio as our judge. So they did the right thing, and they they convicted on all of the murders on Robin, on Jill Barkham, on um, Georgia Wickstead, all of them. So he was he was held accountable for every one of those young women. It had taken almost forty years, but on March thirtieth, twenty ten, Rodney Alcala was sentenced to death for a third time. It would be the final time. This guy just thought, you know, nothing could touch him, and he was the smartest guy in the room, and as long as he could talk, he would get away with it. Ultimately, he was proven wrong. 
When the verdict came back, it came back as I expected that it was, but it's still a feeling of elation that this guy lost his third attempt at freedom. But the murderous life of Rodney Alcala hadn't finished unfolding. In 2011, he was charged of two murders in New York, Cornelia Criley and Ellen Hover. This was during the time he had been going by the name John Berger. To avoid another trial, he pled guilty to both New York murders and another 25 years were added to his sentence. In 2010, over 100 of his photographs were released in the public. As a result, Rodney had since been charged with killing 28-year-old woman in Wyoming in 1977. He has also been suspected of killing other women in Washington State, New Hampshire and Arizona. Given the volume of the photographs, um, you know, we always knew that uh, we had other victims. We just, we didn't know who they were. But many of the photographs found in the locker were still unknown. Some were too graphic to be released, meaning many of the women will remain unaccounted for. Alcala may be the most dangerous of all of the killers uh, that have ever been caught, because while he was only charged with a relatively small number of murders, the number of pictures he had means that he may have killed in excess of 100 people. It's exactly what I said earlier. You just don't know, especially if a lot of these photos, which were obviously too graphic to be released, no one's going to be able to come forward to collect, like to say, yeah, that person has been missing for 20 years. There's closure for the families, at least, but is knowing what happened to them worse than not knowing at, yeah. at that stage, especially knowing who did it? Yeah, but there's also going to be a lot of families still without closure because it's still not been pinned on him. That's what I mean. Like yeah. he he had uh, pictures, like you said, in excess of a hundred people, but he's only got convicted of like a, a very very small percentage of that. So who knows? And, and over we'll never that know. time, the people who would have recognised those photos might not be around anymore. Yeah. So only he knows his dark secrets, which is it's really fucked up. It's horrific. That's a really bad one. That's yeah. Been, well, that's been quite a difficult one to sort of listen to get through. Yeah. None of them are easy to listen to. I feel like this one was very icky. Yeah, it's gross. Like, oh, it's just, just gross. actually makes me feel physically sick. Mm. Rodney died last summer on the 24th of July, 2021, from natural causes whilst he was awaiting death row. <laughs> How do you feel about him dying of natural causes before he... Oh, I don't, let's not talk about death row. I don't want to talk about death row. Next time on Devils in the Dark, with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We'll be looking into the most bizarre and deadly police shootout in police history. The one that includes Gaza and a chicken dinner. It's the crimes of Raoul Moat. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of Devils in the Dark. And we would love it if you could leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime... If you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please do check out the description for lots of helpful resources. Special thanks to Woodcut Media and our wonderful producers at Audio Boom Studios. Bye!